Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our third series, The Making of a Pioneer, Toast is collaborating with the National Portrait Gallery here in central London to explore the lives of six pioneering women, past and present. All have a portrait hanging in the gallery and we will be joined by authors, artists and in some cases the subjects themselves to discuss what it is that makes a pioneer and where this pioneering spirit was born. Emily Bronte appears twice in the gallery. In the first portrait, she stands with her sisters and fellow novelists Anne and Charlotte in a painting by their brother, Patrick Branwell Bronte. In the second, also by her brother, she is alone, captured in profile, the canvas creased, cracked and damaged. For a long time, both paintings were lost and only discovered in 1906, folded on top of a cupboard and gifted to the gallery soon afterwards. Emily is best known as the author of Wuthering Heights, first published in 1847 under the pseudonym Ellis Bell. It is regarded as a pioneering text, drawing on themes of the Gothic genre, a love story that also touches on issues of domestic violence, alcoholism, neglect and sexual obsession. A sensation at the time of its publication, it is still one of English literature's most beloved novels, admired for its unflinching portrayal of human relationships and its visceral sensuality. Outside the Bronte Parsonage in Haworth, I'm joined by the museum's learning officer, Sue Newby, and the New York Times best-selling graphic novelist and illustrator, Isabel Greenberg, whose forthcoming book, Glasstown, explores the childhood imaginary world of the Brontes. So we stand in, in front of the parsonage, in the garden. We can see from where we stand in the church, where Patrick would have preached. That's why the family came here in 1820. The church, it still bears some marks where the story goes. He fired a gun from his bedroom window every morning and occasionally aimed at the church tower. As we see it today, it's not a very nice day. It's rather a grey, windy, wet day. It feels relatively protected. There are a lot of plants growing in the garden, Actually, none of this would have been here in the Brontes days. The churchyard itself was quite an open, bleak place. From their window, they would have seen gravestones looking out and not really very much else. It was right on the edge of the village and kind of on the edge of the moors as well. So why is it different to how it would have been in those times? Well, the most obvious difference is these trees. It almost looks like a little woodland out there. Um, but they were planted really to stop the water that it was thought was going through the bodies, the human remains in, the, in this churchyard, which was very overcrowded, and getting into the wells in the village. Considering all we know about the Brontes as well, how does coming to the parsonage vary from most people's expectations or the first time you visited from your expectations? Well, the first time I came, I think I was surprised actually at how moved I was by the place itself. And even if it isn't how it would have been exactly, the atmosphere is so special. Um, even though the vast majority of my book isn't actually set in Haworth, it's set in their imaginary world, I don't think I could have written it without having come here and seen the place 
Where does that atmosphere lie for you? Is it even in things like the colour of the stone, the relationship between, I guess, sky and rooftops, that kind of stuff? It's very particular to this area, isn't it? Yeah, and you start. I noticed I started seeing the stone starts changing colour somewhere outside Leeds mm-hmm. when you're looking when you're coming through on the train. I've come in all four seasons, and each has a different quality that I found quite special. Yeah. Speaking of seasons, it is October. It is raining. It is windy. Should we go inside? So we're standing in the kitchen of the parsonage. We can see the table just in front of us there with a little German grammar book propped up against a set of scales, which is where Emily would make bread. She'd knead the dough on the table. She'd learn a German grammar. Um, There's a range there in the corner, which would have been going most of the time. It was a warm heart of the house, I think. There was a servant called Tabby that the children were really, really attached to, and this was her domain, and she'd tell them stories and local legends and folklore and things like that that probably found their way into their writing. And what was Emily's role in the house, generally? Emily was a real home bird. Emily was not a sociable person. Emily was happy to be here. There were times when her sisters were away teaching. She tried it, but it was a, not a success at all. Um, and she came back home and she'd take on quite a lot of the housework, I think. She, was, she had quite an important domestic role. But it freed her mind up, I think, to do more creative things. Um, Emily's only work teaching away was at a school called Low, Law Hill. And the story goes she lasted six months and she told some girls she was teaching that she liked the school dog better than she liked them. Now, we're not sure that's true but it's so Emily I can believe it I really really can believe it actually. Isabel does seeing this sort of domestic setup um, help you understand Emily a little bit better as a character and and her sisters too? I think seeing where they lived definitely did and in fact I came here and sketched a fair amount before starting my graphic novel and tried to keep the uh, scenes in the parsonage as accurate as possible although I'm sure that when the experts see my book they will have some um <laughs> disputed moments yeah. i'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure but it's it's all artistic interpretation exactly. <laughs> you love artistic interpretation and it's it was i was trying to create the atmosphere i think more than than yeah. the exact location so we're in the library now could one of you describe it for me it's very got a very particular atmosphere hasn't it it's quite a big room, but it's full of books aligned all the way. There's hardly a, a square foot in this room that doesn't have books there. Just about everything that's been published about the Brontes you'll find in here. We get readers who come from all over, who want to do some original research, perhaps, about the Brontes. So, yeah, it does have a very still, quite meditative atmosphere a lot of the time in here. It's quite different to the rest of the museum, really. Are a lot of researchers still finding out new things about them? Yes, there's actual artefacts and manuscripts that are still turning up in collections all over the world. So every every time something new turns up, then that opens up a whole other field for people to research and just endless endless reinterpretations as well. We see them every generation sees the Brontes in a different way. I think. Isabel, what was the most surprising thing you found out about them when you were researching? Oh. I think actually the most surprising thing I found out was what sparked me making the book in the first place, which was discovering their juvenilia, because I didn't know anything about it. I'd read the novels, but when I discovered that they had this whole 
vast imaginary world before they even embarked on what they're famous for. That astonished me. What was it that, that then sparked something in you to want to make that into a graphic novel? Well, my previous two graphic novels are set in an imaginary world that I invented, and I suppose it would be too simplistic to say that I felt that they were kindred spirits, but I think maybe to a certain extent I did, And but more so I think I'm interested in the idea of this blur between fact and reality and the way that they seemed so immersed in their own imaginary worlds in a way that I'm not and I don't think that many people are that many writers are anymore and I found that really intriguing just the way that their imaginary world seems so real to them. Do you think that's one of the qualities that really captures particularly young women's imaginations when they when they first start reading their work? Yeah, possibly. It has an intensity to it. All of their novels, I think, have different intensities. But yeah, I found them all extremely engrossing and intense in different ways. I think The Juvenalia was intriguing to me because it's about the games, the imaginative games that you play as a child. You lose that ability after a certain point and you remember playing them, but you can't remember why they were so engrossing or how you were so wrapped up in them. And I guess I felt like perhaps they'd just never lost that quality. So I think to a certain extent, my book is about what happens to an imaginary world when you grow up and how it sits in the real world and how you can have both at the same time. And can you? Probably not, really. Are a lot of the people who come to visit the parsonage, are they seeking that same quality, that return to that imaginary world, do you think, and that intensity? I think so. I think particularly with Fans of Emily, because she is such a, an enigma, isn't she? she? She really genuinely left so little behind her. You know, some great poetry, a wonderful novel, a couple of scrappy diary papers. She didn't write letters to people. You know, she's such an intriguing character. And obviously the imaginative genius behind Wuthering Heights, really. And I think people often feel that they can, they kind of project themselves onto her in a way because she's such a blank canvas in some ways and such an outsider. I came up through through the village and there were just crowds and crowds of people all over the roads. Mm. They must come from all over the world, I'm imagining. Yeah, people do. Lots of people coming from the Far East, from China, people from all over Europe. Do a lot of them want to tell you why they've come? Do they have stories of their own great passions or their own connections with the Brontes? Yes, sometimes. And people who work in the museum, people are quite humbled sometimes by the knowledge that other people come with, you know, huge amounts of knowledge and understanding of the Brontes. But just this kind of, the, the effort that it's taken to get them there, you know, and what a kind of pilgrimage it is for some people, really. It's it kind of once-in-a-lifetime thing, I think, for some visitors, definitely. And is there a particular point in the property or a particular room that, that holds them the most? I think it'd be hard to be the couch downstairs that Emily is supposed to have died on. I think the children study upstairs as well, because it's just such a small, little, unassuming room. And you think what might have gone on in there imaginatively... So we know an awful lot about the Brontes, but there's an awful lot we don't know. There are a lot of gaps in our knowledge. Does that help you when you are a creative person and you're writing about them and you're drawing them and you're creating this new world loosely based upon them? I think so. I mean, when I was doing my research, when I first started drafting the book, I realised that the biggest problem I was having was that I was getting way too attached to the source material and there was just so much good stuff and it just couldn't all go in. In the end, what I decided to do was try and be as true to fact as I could in biographical details 
but other than that not let myself be tied down too much to what really happened we can't know the conversations that they would have had about their own imaginary world to each other and so I just decided that that was sort of fair game for me to really play and do what I wanted the book is set after Emily and Anne have died and Charlotte is the last sister mainly because I found that such a poignant idea that you would have such a close relationship with your siblings and then be left alone so I, I had a lot of freedom and also I don't think it would have been possible or necessarily even right to try and adapt the juvenilia in a more accurate way. The theme for this this series is pioneering women and I'm just wondering what each of you th- think are the qualities that make the Brontes individually pioneering? Um, Well, they were living in a time, of course, when women really had no career opportunities at all. The Brontes also were quite financially constrained. I mean, this is a lovely house that we're in, but they didn't own it. There was very little spare cash around when the Brontes were growing up and their future must have looked quite bleak. And on the outside, their childhoods could seem very bleak as well. But they created their own freedom somehow, I think. I also think that particularly about Emily. You know, in in, in the eyes of the world, they were very insignificant. But within their imagination, they were able to create a reality that really sustained them. And I think that, that when they grow up, they did carry that with them. And they just had this incredible, you know, bravery, really, and, and boldness. And where do you think that came from? In some ways, I I wonder if it was partly because certainly Emily mixed very little with the world and even Charlotte, the one who was most out there, had quite limited experiences. And I wonder if partly it's that kind of ignorance of not really knowing what a huge step they were taking. So they just took it anyway. They lost their mother when they were young. Um, The father was a, a really extraordinary character who came from this poor family in Ireland. And he was somebody, I think, who wasn't very bothered about what the world thought I don't think when Charlotte was criticised morally rather than artistically by some people for Jane Eyre in the preface to the second edition she said morality and convention are not the same thing and I think that's something that came from their father you know that kind of boldness that integrity I think is, is something that perhaps came from him. Isabel creatively what makes them pioneering for you? It, when you start thinking about The times that they lived in, it's extraordinary that they wrote such interesting things and particularly, I guess, Wuthering Heights, the characters just act in a way... I just think, where did that come from? Mm. Where People just don't act like that. And the whole thing is so sort of extraordinary and dramatic. It's quite funny in places. And that's what I love about about Wuthering Heights is that I think it has a humour. And Jane Eyre is funny in places, like the dialogue is so sharp and... There's there's so much back and forth, but it's funny in quite a different way. I think mm. it's how did they have three such talented writers in one family is also extraordinary, and obviously Branwell was a writer as well. Is their willingness to embrace dark themes is that quite pioneering in itself, particularly for for women? They've been gothic novels. Yeah, and women were quite popular as gothic novel writers, but I think the difference with the gothic novels is it's very kind of clear, it's very black and white. You've got gothic goodies, you've got baddies. And I think the Brontes take some of those dark, mysterious themes, but they put it in a much more realistic setting. And I think that's what makes it more disturbing to people and more threatening in a way, I think. Thank you.
lot of people still say about women write about sort of domestic issues and an internal world. Do you think that a lot of that belief has been framed by writers such as the Brontes? I think so. I think they did want to write the truth. They, they wanted to write a book that was about life rather than that was copying other books. And I suppose that's the world that they know, isn't it? But they bring to it this just such extraordinary intensity, don't they? That I think it it does give you a different idea of what being a woman and having a limited domestic role can actually mean, really. Isabel, you talked about the power of the imagination then versus now and how different that is now. Do you think that's because so much that we might imagine has been realised now? Do you think that we are fed other people's imagination in a way through soap operas or, or the internet or video games even? I mean, I think there's certainly a lot more stimulation now but I guess also the world would have been so much more unknowable so I can google image what Mm. anywhere in the world looks like if I want but when they were imagining they because they read very widely and they were very clued into the news and what was going on but I suppose that is different to how we see the world now and perhaps you would have had to entertain yourself a lot more and maybe you can only create such intense work if you have nothing else to distract you and all that's staving off boredom is your own imagination. It's quite interesting I suppose that a lot of the books that they would have read or the history books they would have read and the news they must have been abreast of would have been composed, written, framed by men wouldn't it? And then they take those male ideas and their imagination can twist and turn and lead them in all different routes I suppose. Yeah the stories Charlotte's Juvenalia are written from the perspective of men a lot of them and she idolises her character's a mourner who by all accounts is absolutely horrible there's there's a turning point in the juvenilia isn't she where she writes a story about a young woman who's a bit governessy and is meant to be sort of proto jane Eyre. so i suppose there must have been a turning point moment where she thought gosh i've had enough of this i don't think i want to write about men anymore but what is interesting to me is that emily and anne didn't do that in their early work they wrote from the point of view of women by all accounts it sounds like their world was a lot more I don't think we could say feminist because that wasn't really a, th- a thing then, but... but powerful, women. powerful, yeah. Transgressive women. And, Very, yeah. You know, women that you think might have been a forerunner for Catherine Earnshaw, maybe. So, mm. yeah, where that came from, who knows where that came from. That's yeah, amazing. What, what powerful women... I guess they would have known Tabby, but I wonder, it must have just been each other and they must have just thought, we're so powerful and great, why wouldn't we write books from our point of view? I don't know. How did they draw men? Well, they're very Byronic, aren't they? <laughs> they're very um, dark and dangerous and tormented and brooding and sexy, really. And that definitely does come from, I think, them reading Byron, from the father being, you know, really quite unusually permissive in allowing his daughters to read Byron. But what they do is that they really humanise these characters. You know, they write this character from a woman's point of view. How important is their northernness? I think it's really important, really important. I mean, it comes out mostly in Wuthering Heights, doesn't it? And you have that contrast of the southerner, Lockwood, who suddenly finds that's where a lot of the humour comes oh, from, doesn't so it? Ridiculous and he's character. And he just misreads everything. But I think with Wuthering Heights more generally, I mean, the sense of the landscape, I don't think that could have been written by anybody who didn't have Emily's connection with it. And it's not that there's great long descriptions, because there really aren't, but they're so convincing. And, and the kind of the way people speak. I mean, Joseph, you know, he's, it's not a general e-by-gum northern, isn't it? It's a proper, 
you can't tell what he's saying and that is probably how people in Howarth actually spoke should have got that from Tabby I would think Wuthering Heights has continued to inspire sort of new works in particular for women so I'm thinking obviously of Kate Bush I'm thinking of Andrew Arnold what is it that is particularly sort of mystifying about that novel Isabel that seems sort of rich for exploring I just think it's such an incredibly weird book. Everyone's actions seem quite indecipherable to me. But it's also very clever, and I think people read it in different ways. I mean, I don't understand how Heathcliff got portrayed as a romantic hero at all, because he's awful. He hangs a dog from a tree, but it's a really strange, windy, scary, passionate book. So maybe that's why... It has inspired so many adaptations because there's just there's so many feelings. And there's a lot to unravel, I guess, and puzzle and, and work out. Yeah, and how it's sad at the heart of the book is very sad, I think, that two people should so mess each other up. But there's, I think there's a truth in that, and I think a lot of people would relate to, to that still. It doesn't matter that it's set mm. um, on the moors with horses and shotguns and Victorians striding around the themes at the heart of the book are timeless and the same things that are explored in EastEnders like love and messiness and families and grudges being carried down from generations and so on. So we've talked a bit about their novels as well but they're also poets weren't they? Could you tell us a little bit about that side of their work? Well I have to confess that prior to my research for this book I have been pretty allergic to poetry But I felt like I couldn't know the Brontes without trying. And my in was I read a version of Emily's poetry that had been compiled by a woman called Fanny Ratchford. Mm -hmm. I think that's correct. Mm -hmm. And I believe that her researches have now been found to not, not be altogether accurate. But what she did do was string the poems together into a plot, um, which I found really an accessible way to get into the poems. Once I realised I was reading a sort of epic novella in poetry, um, it suddenly all fell into place and they're very, very beautiful and dark and scary. Do you have a particular favourite? Yes, I do have a particular favourite, which is a poem in which Emily describes her protagonist, um, AGA, Augusta Geraldine Almeida, a queen, um, who has just had a baby and realises that the baby is going to get in the way of her queening ambitions and so she takes the baby up to a mountainside and leaves it there which I thought was pretty dark. (laughs) So the kind of darkness that the Brontes were drawn to whether or not it's in their novels or in the stories of leaving babies on a mountaintop what does that inspire in women and what what draws women to that kind of darkness do you think? Well I think it is maybe this fear of being so constrained and so limited and certainly in the Bronte's time they, they, women were had such a very important domestic role as wives and mothers and but in actual fact their lives were becoming more and more constrained at the time the Bronte's were writing not less and maybe you know, the whole kind of gothic genre that, that we do see elements of in Wuthering Heights is, is kind of tapping into that fear of women feeling more and more trapped really in this world that they couldn't get out of this very domestic role and yeah subconsciously they led them to quite dark places.
Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, produced by Jeff Bird and conceived by Emily Mears. All the portraits discussed in this series are part of the National Portrait Gallery's permanent collection. The gallery, founded in 1856, is situated in St Martin's Place. Tucked behind Trafalgar Square, it faces out towards Covent Garden. Toast is a British lifestyle and clothing brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. To listen to more episodes from this series, and earlier series, head to Toast magazine, which can be found via the Toast website, www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.